Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word this morning. Today we're going to look at two suppers and the rider on a white horse from Revelation chapter 19. We have four weeks left in the series and I'm looking forward to each week as we complete the book of Revelation and as we look at four of the greatest chapters in all the scriptures for sure. You know, as we begin this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about celebration and The first year that Kristen and I were married, actually the first two, maybe three years, it was kind of years of adjustment for us. You know, you get married, you don't think about it, but then Thanksgiving begins to approach, and you're like, oh no, where are we going to spend Thanksgiving? And then the lobbyists from both sides of the family begin, right? Are you coming here this year for Thanksgiving? I know you're coming, aren't you? I mean, you know, you you feel that, and, and like, it's okay when you don't have kids, but once you have kids, gloves come off. Like, you better get here. You bring my grandkids, whether you come or not, kind of thing, you know. And so we, we had to make those decisions. Those are the tough life decisions at that point in your life. And where were we going to go? Well, the first year we decided we would go to that first holiday at her family's house. So Thanksgiving at Kristen's family's house is a nice, quaint dinner with about six or seven people. Uh, and that, that's the way it was back all those years ago. We had a beautiful dinner, immaculate spread, and, and it was wonderful. You go to Christmas at my family's house, it's about 50 people that's comparative to a swarm of locusts who invade the house, uh, uh, devour everything that's there. It's loud, it's chaotic, and you know... It, Needless to say, it overwhelmed this Kristen a little bit when she walked into that the first time. It overwhelmed me to sit at such a quiet table the first time. I can have trouble being quiet. That's the way it was. But with both, there was one common factor that as we sat down for our celebration, Christ became the center of it, both in why we were celebrating and what we did for celebration and how we went about all of those things, reading from the word, uh, praying together, thanking the Lord, and taking time to set him at the center of our life. You know, celebrations determine how we adorn our lives with Christ. Not only in the big times, but in the everyday as, as well. They reveal what it is that we believe about him and what we believe about ourselves because of them. And so I begin today by asking, have you considered how the celebrations of your life define you? How they define you? What is it that's worthy of your time, of your energy, and of your resource to show and multiply your joy and your gladness for all of life? You see, as we begin chapter 19 today, we see the revelation of Jesus' victorious second coming before us. And we begin with a party of two suppers that will lead us at the end to a question of stark contrast. And that will determine which party each one of us will attend. Here's what I want you to walk away with today, kind of that big idea. It's simply this. Jesus is coming again soon to conquer and rule. And where our faith rests will be revealed by how we adorn our lives in his righteousness to live ready now. How we adorn our lives in his righteousness to live ready now. 
We're going to look at four understandings to adorn our lives by God's righteous rule to live ready now as we walk through the passage. And, and I'm going to read from the text today because such a phenomenal text, we, we, we need to hear it read before we continue. So let's go to verses 1 through 5 where we'll begin today of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. Today we begin with the celebration over God's final judgment. And that's where chapter 9 introduces here with the response to God's destruction of Babylon. Now we said in our study of chapter 18 that Babylon was a representation of worldly powers. So we're seeing the collapse of the world system here, if you will. And the great prostitute, as is referred to in chapter 18, is Babylon. She is the one who has corrupted the righteousness of God in the world by her deception. And a great celebration begins in heaven with this multitude crying out in praise to God because of her destruction, because of the destruction of the wicked city and and that it is absolutely final. We see that the cry out came from what is called a great multitude. And this multitude is the church triumphant. We're introduced to this multitude in chapter 7 and verse 9. And they declare God's praises for his judgment of the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality. And because of the persecution and the blood of his servants that they shed. And then even in heaven, all the elders and the four living creatures that surround the throne of God, they join in this worship. And there is a voice from heaven's throne that calls for the praise of God from all of his servants. You see, friends, this is not a celebration of suffering, though it is triggered at the moment of Babylon's fall. But rather, it is praise that is lifted because of God's judgment And he is true and just in it. You see, God has vindicated his holiness and he's answered the prayers of the saints of heaven's altar. That's what chapter 19 is all about. When we celebrate true justice, it's it's not about revenge, but it's about rejoicing in true justice. This celebration could easily be misconstrued as the celebration of Babylon's fall, which is not what is being celebrated here, but is the moment or the catalytic event that triggers that. I know that because that's how some of you roll in sports, you know. If you're like some, most, any day is a good day when Notre Dame goes down, right? Oh, some of you, I I, I can feel it. 
Like some of you Notre Dame fans. You're like, oh, I can't believe you'd say that. Okay, let's go to a more generic one. In basketball, anytime Duke loses, it's a good day. Oh, man. We got to have a little stricter covenant membership here. I'm not sure what's going on here. Anytime Arkansas wins is a good day. Oh, wow. Okay. Anytime Alabama loses? All right. Well, anyway, trying to figure out where we're at in all of this for sure. Celebrating true justice, friends, it's not about revenge, but it is about rejoicing in true justice, righteousness. Proverbs 21, 15 captures the entirety of this chapter when it says, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, a terror to evildoers. Justice manifests God's righteousness against wickedness and immorality in order to demonstrate his glory. When God's righteousness is manifested, all God's people rejoice because he is rightly established as worthy as his glory is revealed to us. I want you to see this first understanding that helps us to frame this in a more practical manner. But understanding number one says this, that celebrations define our lives to determine, yea, reveal, where our hope and faith ultimately rests. They define our lives to determine where our hope and our faith ultimately rests. Have you considered how the celebrations of your life define you? What we celebrate reveals much about our heart, what we hold in high esteem, uh, uh, much about where our hopes uh, lie, what what we are hopeful for, and, and how it is that we celebrate is also revealed, friends, not only in wins, but, but it could even be measured in this life with that which holds our hope when those things are destroyed or defeated. Hope defeated can be crushing, can be crushing. Now, I'm not talking just simply about disappointment here. Disappointment, I would argue, can indicate that a hope is destroyed, but but most disappointment is normal. It's even healthy in a response of life. When, when, when that disappointment passes without altering our view of self, without uh, affecting our view of God or infecting our view of others and the world. So disappointment uh, can even prove beneficial when it teaches us about life and maybe motivates us towards greater things in our life. So I'm not talking about simple disappointment. But I am talking about failure that destroys us or crushes us, and how it is that it reveals within us idols of the heart that we're not worthy to hold our trust, could not sustain the hope that we put in them, and when they fall, we have a sense of being crushed, devastated, if you will, in life. You see, failure in a way has a Uh, A failure in life, rather, has a way of revealing the idols of our heart. And it can be great or it can be small. But we can know a failure occurs in this way, that when defeated in any varied form and even to any varied degree, it causes us to question God. It causes us to devalue ourselves think less about who we are. I'm I'm worthless because I failed in some way or the other. God's not faithful because of this failure. Can cause us to despise others. 
Well, if I can't beat them, I'll just despise them, right? And, and, and think less of others. No, that, that's idol revealed there. Or it can cause us to grow embittered and cynical about the world and the way that we perceive all that is. And friends, when this begins to happen, we can know that an idol has been exposed in us. Something that held our hope. Something that we had placed our trust in, our identity in, that was not worthy to hold it. And so often we celebrate the wrong things by wrongly valuing what is unworthy instead of honoring Jesus Christ and trusting him in all things. And might I just throw in here, like failure, even in this life, success also reveals idols of the heart. When we succeed and our celebration produces a greater self-dependence that's absent of gratitude for God. That causes us to believe we have less of a need for God. That can be even more destructive for our heart than failure. And so I ask uh, uh, or, or I address the question that you may be asking. How is it that this matter uh, uh, arises in this passage in Revelation? You see, the daily celebrations of life reveal for us what it is we honor with our life. The things that are important, we're going to make a big deal out of it. And a concern for the world that often arises in spiritual matters that causes us in some way to question God's righteous judgment reveals a wrong understanding of God. It reveals that we hold some kind of secondary uh, uh, idea that God owes us, but in some way he's not worthy to judge us. When we think about salvation and we think about in our day and time, that there will be some who will be welcomed in to the eternal abode of heaven with God, and there will be others who will go and spend eternity in the eternal torment of the lake of fire. We think, God, we think of God less for that. How could, if he's a loving God, he send anyone to an eternity in hell? And friends, that's not a line or a pattern of thinking that's in accord with Scripture. We also think in ways that how could God not save all? Why couldn't God, if he loves me, do what I need from him? It's, so often it's the little things in life that trigger our wrong thinking about God. Because we're putting self first instead of seeking his righteousness for our life. And so when we think about judgment, ultimately an eternal judgment, so often we want to question God and we want to act as if we have a higher level of mercy for the world than God himself does. How could he judge people eternally like that? I heard even this last week a pastor who was making the argument for universalism. In other words, in the, in the end, everything's going to work out. God's just going to save everybody and bring them all to heaven based on John three sixteen. Like, good grief, brother, you need to read the rest of the Bible. That's not the way things work. And Revelation 19 brings us into stark contrast. Universalism is a deplorable deception of the enemy that lulls you into laziness regarding God and infects you with wrong thinking about God. That's where we begin here, friends. When we celebrate what is not aligned with 
or we celebrate in a way that is not aligned with God's righteousness, we join the deeds of Babylon. We sleep with the prostitute of the world in opposing God by valuing worldly pleasure, by valuing worldly wisdom or riches or power, by valuing all of these things above God's righteousness and holiness for our lives and godliness in our lives. You see, friends, Babylon and all of her allure and promises are temporary pleasures, and they are fleeting, and they are doomed to destruction. But the righteousness of God that fills us to be the righteous of God are filled with God so that we can rejoice. And we do not entertain that which is wicked, that which is immoral, or that which opposes and rejects godliness. Let me ask you this question. Do the things that create the greatest celebration or disappointment in your heart, do they align with God and his righteousness and truth? Or do they lean more towards Babylon? Are the things of this world funnier to you, more appealing, more hopeful? You see, it's not as clear of a line, I think, as sometimes we draw with a quick dismissal of it. Because if we're honest, there's no one in the room that is not tempted by the allure of Babylon. And the point is not to go, no, we're on the righteous side, we're all good, and to give it no more thought. But the point is to stay focused on God so much every day and every inkling and joy that comes even in the smallest aspects of our life. That any idol that might be taking root in our heart is immediately recognized to be confessed and repented of and purged from, replaced with the joy that is Christ and Christ alone. Listen, friends, this isn't an us and them sermon because there should never be an us and them sermon in all of Scripture. This is a God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he does for all who put their faith in him to receive forgiveness and cleansing from sin and the greatest gift of all. Well, that leads us into the greatest celebration of all. What is it that happens once God's final judgment is done, as we saw in Revelation 18 and concluded here at the beginning of 19? Go with me to verse 6. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Once Babylon is destroyed, 
the marriage supper of the Lamb begins. And John hears again what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. This is a, 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 sig, a, a literary signifier for us that the progression from time into eternity continues to transpire and advance. And this voice of the great multitude glorifies the Lord with hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And this is the beginning of his eternal reign. And it culminates, how better to, to culminate a celebration than with a meal. And it culminates with the marriage supper of the Lamb where the bride, the church of all the ages, has made herself ready. Now, bride and wedding imagery are very common throughout the scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, a, it's an imagery for God's people across the ages, the church universal, if you will, joining with Jesus and eternity. It denotes the sacredness of our relationship with him. It denotes the purity of our relationship with him and the intimacy of our relationship with him. And look what it says, that the church is made ready by clothing herself in the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. This is a reference to the things that are done in this world. This is not a theoretical or nebulous reference to some good deed doing, but rather literally to the good deeds of righteousness done by faith in this world. Now, to be clear, it's not a reference to what people have done to earn their salvation. Revelation is not teaching that in any way we can achieve salvation. That's not what we do because anything we do without faith is an unrighteous deed, not a righteous deed. No matter how many times we put God's name on it and no matter how good our intentions may be. But rather it demonstrates the genuineness of our conversion by the good deeds that are produced from their life. So often people think that pastors have some kind of secret book that we look to reference the metrics of true salvation. And we learn this in seminary. They give it to us and we check it off for your lives. And oh, once you've reached it, you're in. You're out of our book and into his. There you are. That never happens, friends. There's not a class for that in seminary. Matter of fact, there's not a class for that. We, there, there, there's no one that walks on this earth who has the authority, the capacity, or listen, even the revelation to make the final determination about a person's soul. But I will tell you this, every Christian is charged to judge by fruit produced. And what revelation is speaking of here is what gets produced from our life because of what has been done to our life by God. Look at verse 7 and 8. His bride made herself ready. How? How? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The way she made herself ready was what she did with what was given to her. This is what gets produced by genuine conversion. Once reconciled to God... They gave their lives fully to good deeds that God had ordained for them to do. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. For we are the workmanship of God, the poema, a beautiful masterpiece created in Christ to do the good works that he has ordained for us to do. This is what is being celebrated here. 
that, that the fruit of our life reveals what has taken place in us. And those who adorn their lives with God's good deeds of faith are welcome to the celebration called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the first supper that we see in this passage. And the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb is so glorious. This is such a, a high honor beyond all other honors that there's no higher honor for one's whole life than to make the guest list for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Such that of all the beatitudes that characterize followers of Jesus Christ, there is one beatitude that adorns a Christ follower's life that culminates in this, they say, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What's that telling us? Not that there's an award ceremony, but that as believers in Jesus Christ, there's no higher glory that we set our hope in than the marriage supper of the Lamb. To feast with our King at His table for all eternity with Him. And the angel adds that these true words authenticate all the celebration of God's victory over Satan. This is so overwhelming to John. Listen to me, friends. I told you all ago, none of us, none of us is protected in some special way against idols of the heart tempting us and infecting us. And we see that even here with John as he falls down at the feet of the angel and worships the angel and the angel says, get up, get up. I am but a servant of God. I'm not worthy to be worshiped. Worship him alone. I don't know, it seems like good counsel for the modern day church today who has set up so many idols on their throne. And the church is so embroiled, not only with false prophets and false teachers that want you to worship them, but is so quick to give their loyalty and their worship. And this angel's words are a sharp rebuke and a careful discernment for us today. We don't worship man. In any form, we worship God and God alone. You see, friends, the guest list of who is welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb is comprised of those who have made themselves ready by adorning their lives in God's good deeds by faith. Here's the second understanding I want you to have today. How and why we celebrate in this life determines whether we live ready for the great celebration of life. How and why we celebrate in this life determines whether we live ready for the great celebration of life. You know, we expend our lives getting ready for a lot of things in this world, do we not? We expend our lives getting ready for the birth, birth of our first child, our second child, the birth of every child. Of course, it changes a little bit, you know, from one to 10. And, you know, you, you have... What you know, you used to have baby albums like pictures of that precious newborn. Like the first child had six albums dedicated to their birth, the last child, I can't even find a picture of you. You know, that's kind of how it goes. I think I was the third child. We celebrate first, we celebrate last, we celebrate last first and first lasts, right? I mean, we, we put energy into all of this, we celebrate graduations, weddings. Jobs, homes, acquisitions, loss, endless list that we, could, that we could arraign here. But the real issue is simply this, friends. In all of life, in all of life, 
Is your whole life made ready for the marriage supper by adorning your life with the good deeds of faith in the Lord Jesus? You see, those celebrations aren't unimportant to God. As a matter of fact, I would argue, I think he, he knows that they're more important for us than even we understand. But the question is this. Is he at the center of them? I can't tell you how many young couples we've prayed for infertility to be overcome, for God to open the womb and give them a child. And we've counseled and we've encouraged and we've walked with them and prayed with them. And then when, when the child comes, it's like God gets pushed to the side. He's so often still an accessory, but he's not very prominent. He's sure not sinner. They're not raising that child to honor Christ with their whole life. They're raising that child for them to have a good life, for them to have a lot of fun and enjoy. I think these celebrations challenge us as parents. What kind of children are we raising? Do we buy into this deceived ideology of the world that says, let's just give them a blank canvas and become whatever they choose to be? Why don't you just serve them up to Molech now? I can't tell you how many times I've prayed with young adults and single adults that God would provide a spouse. And we've walked with them and prayed for them for years. And oh God, please, this is what I want. But when the spouse comes, God fades. And marriage becomes more about what their joy and pleasure indulgence is than what God's righteousness is all about. Take that into any lane of life, friends. And the same is true as Christ consuming the center of your celebrations. Or have you just hooked him onto the tailgate to drag along behind? Make a little noise when you need him to. You see, in other words, is, is he centering all of your celebrations? Is he the aim of your joy? Is he your only hope in grief? We adorn our life with his good deeds by honoring him through obedience by faith in all we do. That's why the scriptures teach that we should do our good deeds to be seen by other people, not so they know our name but so that when they see our good deeds, they know the name of Jesus Christ. Christians are a people who that we're called to live different. Not just to be weird, but because we, we, we're not the same. We experience life like no other in the high moments of our celebration. We don't do anything before we give glory to God. I'm not talking about a quick point. I'm talking about the very center of our celebration. And listen, friends, in grief, we don't seek it out, but we don't run from it. We're not afraid of the valley of the shadow of death because we know the one that carries us through it when we have to walk. We don't deny grief. We're not ashamed of ourselves because of grief. We recognize it as a God-given gift for applying the gospel to our lives in ways that the world does not want to understand, let alone entertains to understand. Because we never grieve without hope. He's always with us. 
You see, instead of living for self, we live to serve Jesus by serving others. We don't live to say, I love my life. No, as a matter of fact, Revelation teaches us that we live in such a way where we say, I love not my life even unto death if that's his will for me. I'm going to tell you, I don't hear that coming out of the church a lot today. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm pointing fingers at pulpits. In all of life, we aim to make Jesus known by sharing the gospel so others can hear and come to know him as Lord and Savior. Everything about our life becomes a testimony to everything about his grace and goodness in us. And though the final victory has not yet been brought in today, we live now in the already but the not yet. That there is no question in our heart and mind about whether what he has said will come about in the way he has said it. We're fully convinced of that and we live for that now in our life. And we do that by adorning our lives for eternity with Jesus Christ. Christ followers make our lives ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb by pointing all glory to Jesus in our celebration and looking only to him as worthy in all our sorrow. Do your celebrations belong to Jesus? Are you adorning your life with the glory of his name and the way you live? Go to verse 11. Here is where the warrior Messiah rides in on a white horse. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John sees heaven opened and beholds a white horse with a rider. A rider that is known by four names. And from first glimpse that John has, victory defines in every way. Name number one, he is faithful and true to make judgments and to make war in righteousness that brings about the will of God. He secondly has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is so glorious. He's been exalted to a place, as Philippians 2 tells us, that is above every other place. His name is above every other name. It is a name that cannot be known by anyone other than himself because he is so glorious and he is so majestic and he is so highly exalted and out of that name his eyes are like a flame of fire but with he judges with true and with perfect wisdom he is adorned with many crowns and tells us that he is unlimited in his worthiness to rule in every way he is not beside there are none none next to or before him he is above all the third name is the word of god 
And as the word of God, he is clothed, or his clothes are dipped in the blood from battle. He has fulfilled God's divine purpose. Just as the prophet says, my word will not return void to me, but it shall accomplish the very purpose for which I sent it out. The word of God is here. Accomplish that divine purpose and now coming back for it. He's surrounded by the armies of heaven that are robed in fine linen, white and pure. I point this out to you. Look at what the armies of heaven have in their robe and look what he has in his robe. In the whole army, only one's got any blood stain on his robe. And that's the only one who's doing any of the fighting. Everybody else is reveling in the glory that he has provided for them. A sharp sword comes from his mouth by which he strikes down the nations and conquers in victory. And he is the one that treads the winepress of God's wrath in judgment upon his enemies. His fourth name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's written on his robe and along his thigh. Friends, this is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is coming again soon. And in that moment, For each of us, even as it was for John, there will not be a knee left unbent. There will not be a tongue left mute. That many who have believed in him with faith will declare him king of kings and lord of lords. And some out of unbelief, their tongue will be worked for them to make the confession that they never made in this life. He is unmatched in majesty and regalness. He is supreme in divine royalty. He rides in victory as the almighty and the warrior victor of supreme battles. He is righteous. He is true with perfect knowledge and wisdom to discern all things. And by his word are all things accomplished. And friends, this, this is the moment of his coming again. It's the moment many anticipated with all their life and some with their very lives. It is the moment which has held countless saints by eternal hope that was never spoiled, that didn't perish nor fade. It is the moment many scoffed at and shunned with their life. Just couldn't come to believe it. But here he is, promised and prophesied, incarnate in the world, crucified, resurrected, ascended from the earth, and now returned to enter in his eternal reign. Fulfilled in his glorified person to crush evil once for all and to rule his perfect kingdom. The king is coming again soon. And this is his word by which his will will be fulfilled. Have you believed upon this king? Have you bowed your knee to worship him? Have you confessed with your tongue that he is Lord, that God sent him to become a man and walk on the face of the earth and live a sinless, perfect life in your place because you couldn't? And then to be raised upon a cross and horrifically crucified in your place because even if you were, it wouldn't have mattered. And then to be put into your grave and on the third day raised which becomes your resurrection. If you've never done that, today God is inviting you to put your faith in Jesus Christ that that eternal truth might be the immediate truth about you.
that his righteousness would be placed on you and his blood-stained robe would become your white, pure linen that you shall be adorned in upon this day. The third understanding that we see is this. Jesus conquers to determine who will celebrate true and eternal victory for eternity. Jesus is the victorious king who returns to gather his people unto himself. He is not one of many ways, nor is he even the best of most ways. He is the, hear me, only way. Yes, true biblical Christianity is exclusivity of Jesus Christ. There's not another idol there's not another who's claimed godhood that is beside him that competes with him that threatens him there are none who stand beside Jesus he is the only way and without Jesus every person is dead in their sin they are separated from God they are damned to eternity in the torment of hell hell is a real place and it's going to last far longer than any long time you and I could imagine But by Jesus, all who believe to trust and follow will be led triumphantly into his eternal glory. You know, I find it interesting. Everyone that goes into the game goes in planning for victory. You ever notice that? I don't know of any team that goes in and goes, man, we're going to horrifically lose today. And that's our aim. But only one walks out victorious. Now, I know you would make the argument, no, 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 Pastor, if it ends in a tie. You know what a tie is? Double loser. That's what a tie is. Nobody walks away with boasting as the winner. So let's just throw tie out. You just keep battling it out till somebody gets on the scoreboard. And when you go into the battle, confidence is built on many factors. What it is you know about your skill or your team. What it is you understand about the skill of the other team or about your opponent and Number three, how it is you approach the game. But even with that, some of the greatest teams have walked away losers for reasons that they didn't understand walking in. And some of the mightiest armies have been defeated in battle for reasons no one would have predicted before. You see, friends, don't let the confidence of fools deceive you into believing with losers regarding eternity. No one walks into eternity without Jesus and wins. But all who are with Jesus conquer because he is the almighty victor. What are you trusting for eternity? Are you buying into the ideologies of the world today that tell you hell's not real? It's a figment of someone's imagination that that it's not going to really exist. That's a lie, friends. And we see that right here in the scriptures. It's a lie. Are you buying into uh, the, the ideology so prevalent today that there will be a final universal incoming? That, that in the end, that sugar daddy that lives upstairs just going to let everybody in. That's not true, friends. That's not true. He wouldn't have killed his son for a wide open door. There's only one way that anyone will ever enter heaven. And it's by faith. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you haven't repented of your sins and put your faith in him today, that's the one thing you need to do. Verse 17 to 21, and we'll finish with this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. 
Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its images. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here's the second supper in the passage. It's the great supper of God. You see, before you even take your seat for the big war, Armageddon, just like that, it's over. Almost a disappointment to some, it would seem. We make such a big deal out of Armageddon. Sci-fi loves to talk about uh, all of the arrangement for this war and what it'll be like and how long it'll last and even who will be victorious. But friends, I'm gonna tell you, it's kind of anticlimactic when you read the original author's record of it. Because before the war even begins, the angel announcer comes out and goes, we need the cleanup crew to please come out. It's almost over. The cleanup crew. Shouldn't the cheerleaders come out and get everybody kind of riled up? No, we need the cleanup crew. It's not going to last that long. You see, in this war, the battlefield is not the location of the winner's circle, but the supper of losers. And all who stand opposed to Jesus will fall one final time here. As a matter of fact, all the others with the winner are tuning up in heaven for the great celebration. And while the cleanup crew prepares, the army of the earthly empires gather to make the war. Here they come, just waiting for them all to get here. And like we said, everyone goes into battle thinking they're going to win. But just before the tension peaks, At that moment, uh, yes, could the beast and the false prophet please report to the principal's office? They are taken, Satan's two generals, and dumped into the lake of fire. There's no drama. There's no grand anything about this. The text says it just happened. They're, They're taken, there's nothing they can do about it, and they're placed into the lake of burning fire. And then in an instant, every false idol that deceived every person who identified with it was immediately exposed as a defeated foe. In that instant. And and, and the rest, all of those who align their lives with the beast as the list graphically goes through and lays out for us, and everyone who aligned their life with the false prophet by entertaining and participating with the deeds of unrighteousness, in an instant they were slain by the sword of our king's mouth. And they were left strewn on the battlefield as vulture gorge. I'm not trying to make light of anything, but this is faster than a Mike Tyson KO. The line at the concession stand is still growing. All the important peoples and the dignitaries are still getting out of their cars and coming in on the red carpet. People hadn't even gotten to their seats yet. And the war's over. In an instant, it's over. It's done. And in all the war, only one sword was unsheathed. It's the sword of God. 
The battle with more anticipation than any other proves to have less fighting and zero conflict than any other. For the warrior Messiah speaks and the battle is done. How you prepare in this life, here's our fourth understanding, determines whether you're on the guest list or whether you're on the menu. Whether you lie on the battlefield to scavenger food or whether you're tuning up in heaven for the big chorus and feast, it'll be determined by this one thing, whether you believed in Jesus to repent of your sin and receive him or whether you aligned your life with the deception of the false prophet. It really is that simple, friends. Because what gets billed as the great battle is really just the final sizzle. And so I ask, have you adorned your life with the righteousness of Christ? Or are you participating in the deeds of Babylon? Jesus is coming again soon to conquer and rule. And where our faith rests will be revealed by how we adorn our lives in his righteousness to live ready now. As the worship team returns, I told you there'd be two suppers the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the great supper of God. And one question of stark contrast to commend us in worship to Jesus. And that question is simply this. Today, when it is to be determined, is your name on the guest list for the marriage supper of God? Or will you be found on the menu? You can change it today. Because if you've never come to a point in your life where you've confessed and repented of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've prayed to God and you said, God, I I know you sent Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he died in my place. And he was put into my grave. But when he came up out of the grave, that can become my resurrection by faith unto eternal life. Name on the guest list for the marriage supper of the Lamb. But friends, listen to me. What you do today with Jesus will determine where you are on that day. To wait is to reject in God's eyes. Today is the day of salvation.